The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day, Stephen. You know, Stephen, we may have mentioned last week that we were going to have our frequent guest co-host, Michael Cohen, with us today as is the issue, as you well know, with trial attorneys, sometimes they don't control their schedule and Michael is tied up in a trial. So he's not going to be with us today, but we will have him back to talk about uh, issues before the Supreme Court within the next couple weeks. You know, Mitch, I guess that makes me a trooper because I've always made the gig in the morning, even though I'm in trial. I, I You know, I will... Perhaps we should talk about that when Michael comes back on. What do you think? Okay, we will. <laughs> I'll let him defend himself. That, w- that was my light jab. No, I understand that. And he's actually, uh, I think he's in an out-of-state jurisdiction, too. So he's got a lot of traveling yeah. challenges also. You're right. I'm not even sure because he can't talk about his individual private cases, but you know, sometimes these are international cases. So we don't even necessarily know which jurisdiction he's in within the world. Yeah, that's true. So we, we will be discussing uh, U.S. Supreme Court cases. And I think one advantage will be, Mitch, that there'll be a lot more development when Michael comes back on to join us. I think that's right. So today, we've got a, a potpourri of things. We've done this before. Uh, I, I, I don't have a specific agenda for us, but I got a couple of issues I think might be useful to talk about. Uh, and Stephen, I'm sure you'll have a few as well. Uh, one of the things I want to start by saying is that you know our goal on this show, as we remind people frequently, is to help parse out and explain the law as it applies to things. Regardless of whether it's a political setting or not, underlying many of the issues are our laws. And so we try not to take a political position on this, although I'm sure someone could read between the lines, particularly on some of my comments. But but that's not my goal. It's not to be political, but it is to talk about the laws that drive some of these things. So fair is that a fair enough, fair warning? Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to cast it, Mitch. I mean, you know, some of our biases do leak out. You know, you and I have talked about not uh, wanting to make this a political type show, but the fact remains that there are political and legal issues that are inextricably tied and we just have to talk about them. 
So I think we should talk about the one of the legal issues that has been bouncing around both the news and television and the NFL. Any surprise? I think we should probably talk about the First Amendment and the American flag. How about that? I think that's a great idea. Uh, let me just frame frame it, and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing your points on this as well. But uh, there are two issues. One side of it I'm going to set aside pretty quickly because because I don't think it's a it's an issue in which anyone disagrees with, which is that the First Amendment gives broad protection to political speech. And it gives broad protection to political speech to things that I find personally repugnant. We talked about it, about the Nazis marching in Charlottesville a few weeks ago. Uh, As personally repugnant as I find that, I will stand up and defend their right to peacefully assemble and peacefully speak. It's just, I may not like it, but boy, that is the bedrock of the of you know free speech, so we now have an issue of free speech in football games, and and let me set aside something else that I think is important to know the the law will allow a private employer to restrict speech, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense, Stephen? If you're working at a retail uh, food establishment in the uniform of the company. You're not allowed to unfurl political banners at the place when people are buying their hamburgers, right? True. We see it. We see it all the time in the hospitality industry. Exactly. And so, yes, the courts have said that in the private sector, private employers, as a condition of employment, can restrict speech. Now, that person can take off the uniform go out onto the street and say whatever they like. And there are different cases on this of can you be fired for speech that you've made outside of the place of employment. And generally speaking, those cases have have come down on the fact that if you're closely tied and related to the corporation, they have a right to protect their brand and they might be able to discipline or fire you for that. Um, There are also cases that have said yes, but that can't go too far. But so the private sector has certain rights to restrict employees. All right. Are you with me on that so far? I am. And I don't have any gripes other than to say that in certain cases, uh, if the uh, member of a corporation engages in First Amendment-like speech while he or she is outside of the corporate setting, Uh, that still could be a point of contention because the cases have always centered around whether or not that person still represents the corporation or speaks on their behalf. That's exactly right. And, And you and I, I know, are particularly sensitive to this and attuned to it because as the dean of the law school, when I'm serving as dean, I am very careful that what I say is reflective of my role as dean. But as an individual citizen... I have a much broader latitude, and I'm sure you've always felt the same way when you're in the public sector representing the district attorney's office. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, that said, let's just set aside one other piece. The NFL is a quasi-private organization. Uh, They do have certain government uh, rights for monopoly and things like that. 
but the the real issue of whether or not the NFL owners of individual teams can set rules, I'm not really sure that's all up for discussion either. I, I think the answer is yes, they can. The NFL itself sets rules. The, it gives the owners rights to set rules. And so they have that same kind of private business latitude to set rules, either allowing or restricting certain activities when someone is in the uniform of the team. Fair enough? Would you agree? Yes, that is true. I've actually read some of those uh, internal bylaws within individual teams. Yeah. Uh, At the moment, just to kind of close the loop on that, it appears that the NFL and then NFL owners have made a decision as a private organization to allow certain types of speech and presentation. And they're allowed to do it. That's just all there is to it. You know, we've, we've said they, they can do that. It's, it's, it may come at a, uh, a price. People may not like it. People may take vote with their checkbooks and stay home or stop watching or stop advertising. But that's the free market economy. You're allowed to do that. Right? So from the NFL side, I think it's all pretty clear. And it all seems to be pretty well organized, actually. There's differences of opinion. It's, when I say well organized, from a legal standpoint, obviously it's very messy from everybody having different opinions. But that's the beauty of the First Amendment. All right, so now let me shift to the other side, which is the president's involvement in this issue. It started, apparently, at a campaign event in Alabama. Now, a little-known part of the federal law is that the president, as the president, cannot go around and campaign on behalf of a specific candidate. He can't do it as the president. But the president, as a member of a political party, and as a private individual in the United States, also has First Amendment rights and has protected political speech. So I would argue that when the president was in Alabama at a campaign event, if he was following the other rules of not using government money, uh, the party is supposed to reimburse the government for Air Force One if they're being used. Because, you know, the president needs security, needs to have access to the nuclear football and all those things. So he has to have all that stuff. But the law has basically rolled out that the parties of the respective uh, president will pay reimburse the government for that. So that's how they get around it. So when he was speaking in Alabama at a campaign event as Donald Trump, member of a political party, he has the same First Amendment rights, the same political speech protections as you, as I, as everybody else in the United States. So to argue otherwise, I think, is to not understand the nature of the First Amendment. Still on the same page? I am. What you're introducing is government versus private speech. Exactly. All right. That's the perfect transition, Stephen, and you, you figured out where I was going with it. There are times when the president is speaking as the president, and you and I talked about this about a month ago, when he was standing in the Oval Office and made some comments about the president of Mexico and and a statement that turned out not to be true. And I was then upset that the president, as the president, standing in the Oval Office, would say something that was 
clearly and factually a lie. That bothered me. Um, we chatted about whether or not that was a violation of the law. I would argue yes, but probably not one that could ever be enforced. But now we have the president tweeting about what he said in Alabama. And this is where I'm going to draw the line, and I, again, welcome your thoughts on it. Presidential communications as the president, and he has embraced and said directly that his tweets are his words as president. He has said that. So I'm not interpreting it. I'm saying what he's said before. For him to then tweet about restricting the First Amendment rights of football players. Now that, I believe, crosses the line. And that is a government attempt to chill free speech. And the Supreme Court says, no, you cannot do that. That's where I wrap up. <laughs> so there's more to say, but I'm going to pause there for a minute and take my breath. And oh, that was good. Okay, so you've you've framed and set up the issue. Of course, it's abundantly clear at this point that we're talking about the NFL and what I'm going to call taking a knee. Right. Uh, and uh, you did a good job with the background and setting up the stage or setting the stage for the discussion that we will uh, continue for a while here, I suppose. Uh, and you're looking at government versus private speech, and I'm sensing that you're calling attention to the issue of the tweets, and what my initial thought is, Mitch, on this, and, and I'm going to just share openly, this is a complete non-lawyer thought. I'm just giving you my, my visceral reaction to this. I have a hard time uh, understanding a setting where the commander-in-chief is act actually operating as a private individual. Okay, I must share I have a problem with it conceptually, right? right? Because, uh, yeah, you know, to me, it's almost like what we hear about a firefighter or a police officer. You know, they're always on duty is, is kind of what my in, initial reaction is. You follow me? I do. So um, separating those two and even contemplating the idea that the president of the United States can actually remove uh, that hat and suddenly become a private individual so as to make his communications purely private speech is conceptually a problem with me. Um, now I can shift it back into the law, which of course I'll do my objective best to do. Uh, and I just really wonder about your point, I gather, is going to be that there's a fine line between government and private speech in that if the president's tweets uh, communicate things that create a chilling effect on free speech that it is technically a violation. Yes, that would be my point. And, and I, to be honest, I'm 100% with you on the, the personal challenge of not understanding somebody who accepts public office and doesn't, I suspect, fall on the same side that both you and I absolutely share on this, which is that mantle of responsibility is with you 24-7. Everything yes. you do, everywhere you're seen, every word you say, it's, it's, it's probably let's, con impossible. let's continue it on the break because we're coming up on a break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We will continue our discussion about the First Amendment, free speech, and the NFL 
and uh, of course, all the issues connected with that topic. Don't go away. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the First Amendment, and we're doing it against the backdrop of the NFL and the national anthem and what I have called taking a knee and President Trump's comments relative to that conduct. And Mitch, let's pick back up where we left off. We were talking about government versus private speech, and you had introduced the president's tweeting, which took place in Alabama. Yeah, and well, well, his speech was in Alabama. His tweet was, I assume, at the White House. So we're wherever he was at 3 a.m. the morning he did that. 
Um, so I'm drawing the distinction between private speech. We were talking about how difficult it is to think that the president gets private speech. And I, I fully agree with you that that's a hard concept. But the law does give him that right. Uh, otherwise, no elected official would ever be able to go out and campaign on behalf of their party. Uh, one might argue they couldn't even campaign on behalf of themselves while they were still in office. So in order to to allow that, I guess you could almost call it one of those legal fictions we talk about, that we construct something as a fiction because it fits the law even though it might seem illogical. Uh, so one might argue that this is one of those legal fictions. It gives the president and any other elected official the window of opportunity to speak as a private individual particularly in campaign settings. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Mitch. And I had mentioned Alabama. I'm not quite sure where he pulls the trigger on all the tweets, actually. It's so prolific. <laughs> how, how would I know? You know, how, how right. would I know? You, you had mentioned Alabama because he was stumping at the time in Alabama um, when he made some comments. But the, the tweets are so prolific, um, you know, who knows where he is, what venue he chooses to do the tweets. But I think that is an interesting issue, um, where he actually tweets and whether or not the law really allows him to engage in free speech as a private individual versus a government actor. And again, I'm going back to this issue that I'm not sure you can take the commander-in-chief hat off. I just have a hard time conceptually with that. But some of that might actually just be a decorum issue for me, I must, must admit. Well, I, you know, I, I think we agree on that. So, so let's talk about once, if, you know, it's even easier for us to then make the leap to say when he says things that he needs to, I would hope he would be cognizant of the Constitution of the United States. He took the oath of office, swearing allegiance to the Constitution, uh, to defend the Constitution of the United States and the laws of the United States. And one of the things the Constitution does not allow, as interpreted by the courts, is doesn't allow the government to officially suppress free speech. Government actors, whether it's the president or the police or the district attorney's office, government actors are not allowed to take steps that are seen or effectively suppressing free speech. And there's a number of Supreme Court cases on this. So this isn't a gray area. This is a black and white area and has been around for decades. Um, so when the president says those things, I believe he's crossed the line. And I would hope that he would back off. Although evidently he was tweeting yet again at 3 a.m. this morning on this NFL issue. So uh, I would hope that his lawyers, and he's surrounded by them for all kinds of reasons, would give him better advice. I would hope the Attorney General would give him better advice, but we don't have to go there because you know my feelings about him. <laughs> so yeah. let me bring up one other aspect of it. Uh, Representative Mo Brooks, one of the U.S. representatives, has written, and he then put out in the news, that he sent this letter to Trump. And in the letter, as a U.S. representative, member of the legislature, he has called on the president to withhold the up to a billion dollars a year that the U.S. government spends on various advertising for things that, that they support. Uh, you know, the Army, the Navy, all kinds of things. So you see these ads, particularly on the NFL and on other sports 
te- uh, sports networks. These are government paid for advertising. And he has called for the government to withhold funds unless the NFL changes its rules. And I think you can guess where I'm going on this. I think Representative Brooks should read the law (laughs) because the law says that's specifically what you can't do. You can't use the government's money to coerce someone to give up their right to free speech. So it's very disappointing. Yeah, so Mitch, let's pull back some of the layers on this one because I I do agree with you. uh, But just so that it's clear, the reason that that is a, I'm going to call it potentially a violation, uh, is that federal funds and the use of federal funds creates the nexus for what we call government action. And I think that's the important issue. So if there's any trappings or any indication that it's government-sponsored, that the communication, and let's face it, withholding funds is a form of communication. Would you agree? Well, absolutely. In fact, you know, let's finish this up. But, you know, Citizens United, which was the recent Supreme Court case that said political donations are speech, can be flipped around here and say if private political donations are speech, clearly government funding or threatens, threatening to use government funding a certain way is going to fall into that same definition. That becomes government speech. Yeah, that, you know, Mitch, that's a great point. And there's a good example of where a case, you know, Citizens United is a case that uh, its holding has a, a very, very um, important message. And although the holding impacted one specific party in that case, now you can see an application of that same holding and that same rule affecting a different party. And the bottom line here is that there should be no nexus or government connection because if there is an indication uh, that there's government-sponsored activity or speech that thwarts certain kinds of conduct or prevents others from acting in a certain way, uh, that's a rogue violation. This is one of the bedrock things we learn about law school, and, and this really goes back, uh, probably the easiest way to explain this is, you can go back to the 1989 case that dealt with flag burning that went to the Supreme Court, and in this case you had Justice William Brennan uh, writing, and, and what he said was, quote, if there's a bedrock principle underlining the First Amendment, underlying the First Amendment, It is that the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. Yeah, that's a great site, Mitch. And we took that one on with the Nazi uh, assembly and and their... um their efforts to gather and protest. I think that's a great example. Sometimes, you know, we have to maybe, I think, hold our noses when we look at certain forms of speech, but we also have to honor uh, the right to do it. Yeah, and then let me address a couple of things. And I guess this is just personal dis- you know, disappointment, I'll say, with with a U.S. congressman who, you know, calling on them to hold back the money without doing his homework. He goes on and proceeds to quote and say the reason he can do this or the reason it should be done is that uh, he quoted 36 U.S.C. 301, 
which is the section of the U.S. Code that describes how the flag can be used. Uh, it suggests uh, codes and uh, guidelines and decorum, and it's all written in the, the words of should, not must, because if it said must, you know, you, you don't have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. The Supreme Court determined that. You don't have to stand for these things. Uh, the, the U.S. Code does give code of conduct. No question about it. He quotes it correctly. But what he doesn't say is that in that code, the courts have ruled that it doesn't prescribe conduct. It's merely advisory. And so if he'd even looked at one footnote related to that law, he would see that the courts have been asked to clarify that, and they have determined that these are advisory rules of decorum and conduct, you know, when, you can, where, when and where you can display the flag, how you should behave with it. But let me point out one that he seems to have skipped right past while he was being offended watching the NFL games. Uh, let's see, number... C, Section 8, so this would be USC Section 301, Part 8C. The flag should never be carried flat or horizontally, but always aloft. So he ought to be equally offended by these 100-yard flags that are being carried horizontally across football fields if he wants to be consistent with his concern about dealing with the flag, he ought to actually read even the entire statute that he's quoting from. Wow, Mitch. Bravo for digging deep and going into the the pocket part of the statute and citing <laughs> the subsection. I got to give you credit there. That's good. You know, so, Mitch, let me, let me make a comparison, though, before sure. we leave the Brooks issue, because I think it's interesting. We'll actually see this play out very likely next or this Sunday, actually, maybe even Thursday night football, who knows, uh, because the NFL games are also being played on Thursday night. But one of the interesting issues will be the withholding of services from private sector participants in NFL production. Um, many of our listeners may know that there's been some stories out there that some of the uh, service providers to the broadcast team in NFL games have uh, issued statements that they are not going to participate. For instance, one would be the garment or uh, clothing uh, provider for many of the broadcasters has agreed to or has stated that he and his company are going to withhold services. Now, that's a, a price of naked broadcasters. Oh, I don't know if they're going that far, <laughs> but they're going to have to scramble to put that tie shirt and uh, coat combo together. And, and, and that's a, I, I'm just sharing it because that's a, a good comparison with purely private conduct versus uh, government-connected conduct. So Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see that play out because I think we'll see that. There may be even some sideline reporters that have uh, maybe made statements that they are no longer going to participate or go out on certain gigs uh, in protest. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, that is the distinction that we're trying to make through all of this. There's a private aspect to the First Amendment that is that the Supreme Court has just, I'm not sure there's any part of the Constitution that has been more broadly construed to provide protection. And, and it, it, 
they have a private right to withhold their advertising, to withhold their products. They can disagree with it. They can talk about disagreeing with it. I mean, all of that is absolutely allowed and not just allowed, aggressively protected under the Constitution. It, the difference here, which we're hoping to bring to everyone's attention, is it's a completely different set of rules when it's a government actor, when it's an elected official acting in their capacity as an elected official, whether it's the president, a governor, even even if it's a, a public actor, as I said, such as a police officer or a sheriff yeah, and, or a city and, council person. Absolutely, Mitch, and that's what makes our nation or sets our nation apart because there are many other nations and countries where there's dictatorships, where there's a completely different different application or perhaps no application of that kind of rule. That's right. So I, 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 you know, obviously we have personal opinions. I've tried not to have my personal opinion as to whether or not I personally want to see political speech in the middle of a sporting event. Uh, that's, that's something for each of us to decide on our own. And I welcome the open dialogue about people who believe that it's a great venue. It brings an attention where the eyeballs are. On the other hand, I fully understand those who believe that, oh my gosh, give me a break. I just want sports for sports. Can't you give me one little venue in which I can just watch sports without politics? Agreed. Let's shift our topic to uh, the oath of office when we come back from the next break, Mitch, and talk about uh, the great state of Alabama and the Senate primary and Roy Moore. How's that? We'll look into the oath and whether or not that can be adequately taken. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over voice America Radio. We will be right back after this short break from our sponsors. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. 
They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept that that soon you'll be drenched to the bone And if your breath to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law And I have to thank Kevin for teeing up a great song, Mitch I don't know about you, but I had an ear-to-ear grin (laughs) Exactly Reminds us of times when there are these issues were all back in the forefront again. You know, we uh, we have Kevin uh, put music on for us, and he chooses it, and he's done a great job actually tracking some of our themes. I was thinking he was going to go with Bob Dylan or Arlo Guthrie, and he actually <laughs> did Bob Dylan. Yep, it was very nicely done. Good job, Kevin. Uh, so, Stephen, you you mentioned we well, let's shift let's shift topics here to another. Uh, news story this past week. There was a, a that when Jeff Sessions was named to be Attorney General, it opened up a vacancy in Alabama. There was an appointed replacement, uh, Luther Strange, uh, who was then running in a re-election campaign. And then the competition in the Republican primary was a former Supreme Court judge of Alabama, uh, Roy Moore. And so that that campaign went down this past week, and to many people's surprise, Roy Moore, the uh, not the incumbent, defeated Luther Strange and is the Republican nominee to become a U.S. congressman. Okay, so that's kind of the quick background of that. Uh, but the question I wanted to raise, and and this is not one that we have an answer, I just find it fascinating that if anybody followed this story with any uh, closeness, uh, Roy Moore is a very interesting candidate. When he was Supreme Court Justice in Alabama, he was actually sanctioned twice by the Alabama Commission that, that reviews judicial misconduct, 
and not only sanctioned but removed, suspended twice from his service as Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. That's not the issue that I think's interesting. What's interesting is the reason that he was suspended. And in both cases, these were disagreements he had with federal courts and their interpretation of the Constitution that he refused to accept. So can you imagine where I'm going with this, Stephen? I think I know where you're going. So here's something I'm just I'm just going to throw this question out there for Judge Moore. I wonder if you have read the oath of office for the U.S. Senate. Should you be successful, since you've won the primary and you'll be representing the Republican Party in the general election, uh, in whenever, whenever that's coming up in a few months, if you were to be victorious, you're going to be expected to you know, raise your hand on, if your choice is a U.S. Uh, not U.S. a Bible. And you're going to have to say the following things. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office of which I'm about to enter, so help me God. So support and defend the Constitution of the United States. So I'm just querying, Stephen, whether Judge Moore has thought through what he's going to do. It's one thing to be in a state and have a disagreement with a federal judge, okay? But it's another, another thing to swear allegiance to the Constitution which gives the judiciary the right to hand down rulings of which are binding unless the legislature changes them. And he has already twice been willing to lose his position on the court rather than support and defend the rulings related to the Constitution of the United States. So, Mitch, let's... Uh set the stage here and address some of the intellectual roadblocks that Mr. Moore might face when that poignant moment occurs where he needs to take the oath of office, potentially. And I think I'm inviting you to introduce some of his uh, statements that he has uh, he has seemingly relished in, in uh, delivering. Yeah, well, one of the things, you know, the first first issue he had was he had the Ten Commandments in his courtroom, and he would welcome uh, ministers and individuals of faith, uh, leaders of the faith community, to start his court sessions with prayers. Okay, so this is the state court. We talked before about government action. No question about it. This is a government action. It's a government building. These are government funds that pay his salary, pay the lights, pay the prosecutors and defenders. I mean, it's just no no question around the, the government action part. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, you can't do that. That's a violation of the separation of church and state. And uh, an establishment clause violation. Yes. And he also then... Uh, 
unveiled and supported a, a granite monument with the Ten Commandments on the grounds of the courthouse. And when ordered by court, by the federal court, to remove them, he refused, and so he was suspended from office for that action. So I, I question how he's going to deal with that type of an issue when he becomes a, a if he becomes elected, if he's elected. So then the second, the second item, which again was a Supreme Court issue, a federal Supreme Court issue, was when the Obergefell decision came down saying that uh, same-sex couples could marry and therefore by virtue of that decision states could not deny them marriage licenses he ordered as he was back the suspension was over he was back on the court he ordered the clerks of the however many courts uh, counties there are in Alabama to refuse to issue those marriage licenses again a government action a government actor and a government action in something that was ruled on by the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, that, that, was, was, that was his ruling or his dictate that was uh, handed on down to the probate courts, right, Mitch? Yes, it's exactly right. And it put them in a terrible position because now you have the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court ordering you to do one thing and the U.S. Supreme Court essentially directing you to do something else. A very difficult position for those probate court judges and the clerks within those counties. Uh, the the result of that was he again was suspended from the court, and a different decision was handed down, a different direction was given, which was to comply Issue. with the Constitution. Yeah, and then what's interesting there, Mitch, is that the probate courts actually do answer to the the state supreme court. That's the right. system, right? So I just, you know, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not denying his right to have those beliefs. Obviously, both of those issues were uh, advocated at the court. You and I have talked about that many times, that any issue that gets to the Supreme Court has advocates on both sides. You have a court that has said, this is a serious issue. We want to hear arguments. We want to render an opinion. So I'm not denying the validity of the position or the advocacy. But as a person who's sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution and the laws of the United States, I just question whether he's given this enough thought. You know, Mitch, I, I think that you've flagged an issue that's very, very significant as we track headlines here in this story, um, you know, which I have done. Uh, most of the press seems to be centered around uh, President Trump's endorsement of uh, Luther Strange, and of course, there's um, valiant efforts by the press to really criticize Trump for that, and they they highlight the alleged blow to the GOP as a result of that endorsement. Uh, however, I appreciate the fact that you've highlighted the oath issue because I am going to make the bold prediction that that issue will be a significant one when it comes to uh, prevailing uh, in the general, because this is just a primary. Yeah, I think that will come up. And 
And I hope he gives it serious thought. I hope he's given it thought. I mean, sometimes in the heat of the moment of a campaign, it's very exciting. I mean, he's run for governor unsuccessfully. He's been, a, in some ways, a career politician. Uh, but, but now he's moving into the, he's moving up to the big leagues. We yeah. talked about the federal government and the U.S. Congress, and the, high, and the limelight of that is going to be very different than being a court justice down in Alabama. That's true, Mitch. And, you know, I'm no political consultant, but I'll bet you that Mr. Jones, I think he's the Democratic uh, challenger, is uh, probably going to go there, probably going to address that issue. I think that's it. So we have a couple minutes left. I just want to highlight, and I, you know, you everybody knows we track stories, and sometimes they're ready to discuss, and sometimes they're just ready to watch. I'm going to suggest that here's one, another one we should watch. I don't have a, a answer for it yet. Uh, it got kind of swamped out of the because of the NFL story, but there were headlines that there are six White House advisors under the Trump administration who have been using or were using private email accounts after Trump took office and after they were in positions within the executive branch and the presidential branch. And I I highlight that only because I can't even imagine the scenario that after months of a campaign that, and we did a show on whether or not Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server was or wasn't violation of the law. And keep in mind, that was as Secretary of State, not as advisor to the President of the United States. And there's a different law that applies to the President. Uh, I just have to believe that, that this is a story that's going to come back up. Mitch, I, I put it on my board and my notes are pot, kettle, and glass houses. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I don't want to take the topic on while you're not in the chair. So I'll make sure that you're on board on that one. The other one, Mitch, I want to just tease very briefly is the college basketball inquiry and the challenges, legal challenges uh, that are going to arise uh, relative to uh, the investigation, federal investigation that has recently led to the ouster of uh, Rick Pitino, coach of uh, the Louisville basketball team. There's a lot of really significant issues there connected with the federal probe and the legal issues uh, surrounding that topic. Good call. I think we definitely need to keep an eye on that one and bring it up as it as it ripens a bit. Well, Stephen, another great show. Thanks for joining us today. This has been Wagner and Winnick on the Law. A reminder that you can hear an archive of today's program at the voiceamerica.com business channel or at wagnerandwinnick.com. As we remind you each week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.